This episode is sponsored by GovX, a company I've used for several years now and wish I'd used for even longer. If you are a member of police, fire, EMS, corrections, nursing, a hospital setting doctor, and members of the military, and you are not registered with GovX, you are simply wasting your money. A free registration with GovX marries you with a multitude of companies that are offering our professions discount. So by registering at govx.com for free, you will then have a lifetime membership and you can shop for the very same things and save money. I've saved a huge amount of money buying sunglasses, I've bought knives, I've bought clothes, and even concert tickets on there. Another area I love about this company is GovX Gives Back, where they will raise money for different foundations every single month. And with this being September, they have a 9-11 memorial patch that raises money for firefighter aid. So if you're active duty, if you are retired, or if you're a volunteer, you are eligible for this membership. And on top of the savings that you will get by being a member, GovX is reaching out to you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, to offer you an extra discount. If you spend 50, that's five zero dollars on your first order and use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, you will save an additional $15. So $15 off your first order of $50. So visit govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register, and then be a member for life and continue to save over and over again. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 5.11 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 5.11, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome to episode 358 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson. Now, Dr. Stray Gunderson has spent his career working with elite performers, whether it's athletes or astronauts, 
and researching tools and environments to squeeze out elite performance. So we discuss a host of topics from blood flow restriction in his product Be Strong to cryotherapy, altitude training, and so many other topics. Before we get to that interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. And as I mentioned, this is a free library for you, the audience, whether individually or within your organization. So all I ask is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Stray Gunderson. Enjoy. So Dr. Stray Gunderson, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Uh, very happy to be here. Now, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in Park City, Utah. Fantastic. And how's the weather over there at the moment? Absolutely gorgeous, clear blue sky, um, temperature probably in the 60s, uh, very comfortable. Brilliant. All right. Well, I love to start at the very beginning. You've got an incredible you know, career path that you took. Um, but what did your parents do? Where were you, I'm sorry, where were you born? What did your parents do? And then you know, how many siblings did you have just so we can get an idea of your family dynamic early on? Well, um, I would say the story started um, with my dad being uh, invited over for a track scholarship after World War II from, uh, from Norway. And uh, he, he went to uh, Beloit College in Wisconsin and Met my mother, and uh, they ended up getting married after college. And um, but they had moved back to Norway, and uh, my mother was became pregnant with me. And in those days, if if you only had one American parent, you had to be born in the U.S. to be American, and to be Norwegian, you didn't need anything but one Norwegian parent. So. Um, my uh, mother uh, flew back to the States, and uh, I was born in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, then around all this time, my parents decided to give life in the U.S. a try. And um, my, da- my dad got a job pushing a broom in a factory in Milwaukee. And um, uh, from there rose up to be the vice president of the international division. And that... Um, of a heavy construction equipment manufacturer. Um, so in a, in a way, it's a great American immigrant story. But then uh, in the course of this, this company, uh, they ended up, uh, when I was five years old, they offered my dad to run the Far Eastern Territory. So um, we moved uh, from Milwaukee to uh, Tokyo. And... Uh, um, from when I was five to when I was 12, I, we lived in, uh, in Japan, Tokyo and Yokohama and, um, actually, uh, went to a, um, a British oriented school. So, uh, you know, we had the nice little gray shorts and white shirts and knee socks and, um, had to use a, had, had to use a, a pen 
with a nub and a blotting paper and an inkwell and was always making a mess of my desks that I ended up having to sand off every year. Um, so, uh, anyway, uh, I have three younger sisters, um, and, uh, the four of us, uh, were in Japan until I was 12 and then we moved back to Wisconsin and, um, I finished my, um, middle school and high school education in Wisconsin. And then I went to the university of Wisconsin for college. And while I was there, my parents went back to the far East, but this time to the Philippines. And so, um, uh, my sister who's a year younger than I am. She, she and I were both in college by this time, but, uh, the younger two girls went with my folks to the Philippines. And so, um, for Christmas and summers and stuff like that, I would, uh, go back to the Philippines. And so a, a large part of, um, my upbringing, I would say was involved in, uh, being, uh, in and around Asia. And uh, I think that had a big influence on um, my education and various things that I did. Uh, the other kind of big push was we were always very interested in sports. And um, I played lots of tennis and, um, and track and field or track, actually. And um, then got into some cross-country skiing. Um, pretty much any game sport, that kind of thing. And, uh, so when I went to uh, the university of Wisconsin, I, I ran on the cross country and track team and, uh, did that for a couple years, but, uh, then became overtrained and injured and then focused on my schoolwork and ended up going to med school and that sort of thing. But I never lost this interest in training and the physiology of exercise and all those sorts of things. So, um, when I finished my, uh, general surgical general surgery residency, uh, I ended up having an opportunity to do some postdoc fellowships in cardiovascular physiology and another one in human nutrition down at, uh, university of Texas, Southwestern medical, uh, school in, in Dallas. And, um, I ended up running a human performance lab there and uh, um, had a career as a faculty member in cardiology and orthopedic surgery um, in, in, in Dallas at the medical school. Um, and in, in that role, the thing to do is publish lots of papers and give lectures and attend meetings and uh, do a variety of studies. And so that's, that's what I did. And so instead of kind of following the typical plan of being a general surgeon, uh, and, uh, taking out, you know, hundred gallbladders a year or whatever, uh, I ended up being involved in academic medicine and predominantly, uh, what amounted to sports medicine, which was in those days was really cardiology and orthopedics. And, um, in those roles, I ended up getting involved in a lot of, um, well, primarily cross-country ski racing, uh, speed skating, and uh, middle and long-distance track and field, which had also been sports I was personally interested in, 
Uh, and uh, I ended up essentially being the physician and physiologist for those teams for, oh, probably 30-some years. And um, so on one hand, I had this academic research orientation towards uh, exercise physiology. And on the other, I had a practical application of managing uh, really the sports science and sports medicine for a lot of um, of these uh, Olympic and professional teams. So I guess that's kind of a summary and that led, led us up to where we are now. Um, at this point, I'm retired, but uh, um, still very interested. And the reason for Park City basically is this is headquarters of U.S. skiing and it's also the headquarters for U.S. speed skating. And uh, it's also a site where we did a lot of our altitude, live high, train low research. So brilliant. Well, let's let's start with that. I mean, there's so many things I want to unpack with with your work, and obviously some of the products that you have, um, you know, currently as well. But with the altitude, that's something that we hear a lot, um, especially when you. I'm a big fan of the mixed martial arts, so you'll see a lot of those fighters go to Big Bear in California or you know Denver, and they'll they'll do their fight camp and then go back down to where where they're fighting, or the the actual event is held at that altitude, and therefore they've got to spend you know two three weeks before. So educate us on, on what you found in your studies. Cause I think that's an area that, that most of us don't truly understand as far as altitude training. Yeah. Um, so, uh, really the first interest in altitude was associated with, uh, the 68 Mexico city Olympics, where on one hand, a lot of the sprints and jumps ended up setting world records because of the reduced air resistance at Mexico City. Um, but all the endurance sports, running, cycling, swimming, um, all of those things, um, uh, their performances were poorer than they otherwise would have been at, at sea level. And this, this got coaches and athletes and some sports scientists interested in understanding what was going on here. And then there's another line of work where the East Germans used to send a lot of their athletes up to camps at, at 2000 meters of altitude or about 6,700 feet. And, uh, um, they would train them really hard. And if the athletes survived the camp, they were, uh, uh, in outstanding, uh, fitness and, and very successful in their performances. Um, so there's all this stuff going on and, and, and uh, a lot of scientists started getting interest in this. Uh, but the scientists couldn't really find any particular advantage of training at altitude. And uh, there are lots of anecdotes, lots of stories about people coming back and being uh, faster and all this sort of stuff, but uh, uh, the scientific community really couldn't confirm these kind of advantages. And then another line of research was there had been a lot of interest in going to extremely high altitude, um, Everest, the Andes, and that kind of mountain climbing expeditions. 
And um, there are a number of things that were associated with those kinds of camps. And uh, one of them was that uh, you weren't able to do very much work up there. And uh, uh, in addition, uh, people ended up having uh, uh lots of uh, blood clotting episodes and uh, um, thrombosing arteries and a lot of uh, negative stuff, uh, strokes, that sort of thing. And so uh, there was a line of interest in research of understanding what the problems with extreme high altitude were that were causing all these problems. And... um, then on top of that, uh, this was in like about 1984 when I ended up uh, joining the first uh, U.S. cross-country ski team camps where we went to uh, uh, the Dachstein Glacier in, in Austria. And uh, um, we would live down at uh, 1,200 or 1,500 meters in a, in a little town called Schladning. And... Uh, um, we would drive up to a cable car and then take a cable car up to the glacier at about and where the skiing was at 3,000 meters. And um, that was kind of, in retrospect, that was actually backwards. And what happened was uh, people would go up to the glacier and ski and they just couldn't ski very fast. And so it wasn't really very good training, but it was getting on snow in the summer, which was important. Um, and then because most people were living down at 1,200 or 1,500 meters of altitude, um, they're, they're, they really didn't become acclimatized to altitude per se. And, um, and, and I recall talking with the coaches and saying, you know, uh, why are we doing this? You know, people can't really ski very fast and um, – you know, it's expensive and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, one good, one good answer was that, uh, you know, you could, uh, uh, get on snow in the summer. That was valid. Um, but, uh, then there wasn't much else that was going on. So I, I said, well, there's, there's something that is kind of weird here that's going on and I don't really know what it is. So, um, with that, I, went to the literature and tried to look up everything I could possibly look up on altitude and um, noticed a couple things. Uh, On one hand, from uh, medical complications involving clotting in some of these high-altitude camps, high-altitude sojourns, as well as um, some work in the Andes by a guy named Reginafari, who... um, was measuring blood volume on, on uh, Chilean miners who would uh, go up to about 5,000 meters and work in the, I think they were silver mines, um, for a month. And then they would go back down to um, literally sea level uh, where their homes were, um, I think in Santiago and stuff like that, it's right on the ocean. So it's absolute sea level. And they'd spend four weeks at 5,000 meters and four weeks at, uh, at sea level and go back and forth. 
and he noticed that their blood volumes and their uh, hemoglobin concentrations would uh, dramatically increase in their time up in the mountains, and then they would go back down again when they were back at sea level. And I started thinking that, and then another thing about the Everest expeditions, I mean, it was, it's so hard to exercise at that altitude. There's just no oxygen to fuel the exercise. So you're so limited in what you can do. And that can't be good training for uh, sea level race performance for cross country skiing or running or cycling or anything. So a friend of mine, Ben Levine, and I decided that we were going to try to figure out what was going on here. Um, And we separated the uh, idea of living at a certain altitude versus training at a certain altitude. So we had all the combinations of, uh, we would have some people living at 2,500 meters and training in and around 2,500 meters. We would call that high, high. Then we had people living in the same spot at 2,500 meters and training down near sea level, and we would call that high, low. And then we would have people that um, lived and trained at an intermediate altitude, um, like Salt Lake City of 1,250 meters. And uh, that was kind of a middle no man's land. It's kind of like Denver also. Um, and then we had people that lived in, uh, in Dallas and trained in an altitude chamber at 2,500 meters. So that was living low, training high, And then we had a group that lived and trained in Dallas for a low, low training group or living and training group. And um, we uh, basically tested everything we could think of. And uh, long story short is that those people that lived high, and that high meaning 2,500 meters or 8,000 feet, and probably the range is seven to 9,000 feet. Um, so uh, that they lived there and that they trained low down at 1,000 meters or less, those people had the, the biggest improvement in their performance. And the, the people that lived high and trained high actually uh, did not improve their performance uh, right away when they came back from these four week camps and um, and looking at all the data what we what we really found the main thing there are a lot of different tests but the the main thing is that those athletes that lived at 2500 meters um, if they were able to increase their red cell mass or their blood volume uh, those were the ones who had the improvements in sea level performance. And, and this is for 5,000 meter running or five kilometer running. And, uh, uh, that, and so this is the big deal is being able to increase your red cell mass. It's a, almost a form of blood doping, but natural. And, 
the ability to maintain the training intensity of being able to run your intervals and your hard uh, pace work at at sea level oxygen flux and uh, sea level paces. And those two things in combination uh, were the things that were most successful. So um, it really isn't about altitude training at all. It's about altitude living. And that's the thing that confers the advantage. And the only problem with living and training in the mountains all the time is that like as you're going up Everest where you can't really exercise very hard, that's the extreme, uh, you cannot train at sufficient intensity and speeds at altitude to be able to compete successfully at, at sea level. So if you're thinking about your mixed martial arts guys, they would benefit from living at 2,500 meters. This would increase uh, their blood volume and their red cell mass, which would improve their oxygen delivery to the working muscle and tissues. And then with mixed martial arts, it's a, it's a little bit uh, different. So there's, it's a lot of explosive activity and it doesn't necessarily go all that long. So the, the speeds and intensity uh, can be very similar to sea level. So for them, it's not that big of a negative to be able to, to train up at altitude. And on the other hand, um, uh, they would have difficulty uh, with, uh, you know, the later, the later rounds of a competition where, you know, they're, they're just starting to run out of gas. And this is, this is due to the inability to recover from not as much oxygen around. Um, but it makes sense for them to, to do training camps up at, 2,500 meters, and um, and in and in my mind, all of these camps, you basically need at least three weeks, if not four, to have the altitude, uh, the effects of the altitude uh, influence your red cell mass. So that's that's the important thing there, and um, and it also explains all this literature where they would take people up to altitude and train them at altitude. And, and not really see much of a benefit when, when things were well controlled. So um, Ben and I ended up uh, kind of solving the problem of altitude training uh, for uh, most people. And I would say that pretty much today, nobody in, at least in endurance sports, um, uh, does not avail themselves of uh, living high and training low. Now, having, having said that, um, as you said, not everybody really understands what it's about. So you, you get all sorts of bizarre uh, people doing all sorts of things. And uh, uh, we're back to the anecdotes again. But uh, the thing that we know works is living high enough to get an increase in red cell mass and training low enough so that you can maintain sea level intensities for your training. Great. Well, thank you. I mean, that makes perfect sense as well your adaptation is happening when you're literally 24 hours in a certain altitude but it makes perfect sense as well that you're not going to be able to get maximum performance if you suddenly go to an atmosphere that you're not used to but if you're living in that high atmosphere and then go lower to get your maximum exertion your training 
that also makes sense. So I've never heard it that explained that way, but you have literally <laughs> explained to me now in, in a way well, that and, I can understand. And, you know, it's it's kind of a pain in the in the rear to have to travel to get down low all the time for the training. So an alternative is uh, supplemental oxygen. Um, and on treadmills or bicycle ergometers or that sort of thing um, that where you can deliver that even lower than sea level oxygen concentrations uh, to uh, really improve the performance there. So we, we, we've teased apart this business about um, uh, the effects of living at, in, in, at significant altitude or moderate altitude and the idea that uh, really the more oxygen you can deliver to a working muscle, the longer and harder it can work. Brilliant. Well, I had an experience like that. I skied at, uh, or snowboarded actually at, in Denver. Um, when was it last, last winter? I think it was. Um, and I can absolutely, I'm, I'm here in Ocala. We're basically sea level in the middle of Florida. And then we went straight up to there, skied the same, I think the following day that we arrived. Um, but I saw, by, by the way, James, that's a perfect, uh, formula for getting mountain sickness. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I felt it. <laughs> I mean, I was, I'm pretty, you know, I like to think of myself as an athlete and I could absolutely see the, the detriment to my performance, but I mean, that was the only way of doing it. We only had a couple of days to, to go over there, but, but I saw the, the canisters of oxygen they were selling. People were, you know, were able to, to breathe off. Now, is that actually worth it, or do you really need to have that that steady flow like a canyon or something to really get the benefits? Yeah. Uh, well, for any kind of – so there, there's a couple things going on. One, one is people coming from Florida or Texas or New York or whatever going for their ski vacation. Uh, they, are, they are not acclimatized, and they can't uh, – at Vail, for example, or Aspen, which is – right around uh, 8,000 feet, 25% um, of the people that travel there end up with uh, symptoms of altitude sickness uh, enough so that they don't go about their normal activities. Um, so, and with that, uh, oxygen is the cure. So, uh, these little canisters of oxygen uh, really help out with, with all that stuff. Um, but, uh, in terms of doing significant, let's say, let's say you were, you know, you were snowboarding and you were skiing bail or snowboarding bail and, and, uh, you know, you'd have to have a pretty continuous supply of oxygen to really make that work for you. And, uh, those systems exist actually that we, we, um, developed a system where, kind of a little camelback, we would stick an oxygen tank and get somebody about 45 minutes of, of sea level oxygen uh, while they were doing their workouts. Brilliant. Well, speaking of being very high, <laughs> another um, you know organization that you work with was NASA. So tell me about your, your work there. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, uh, my particular part, I, I was involved in... Uh, uh, a couple of uh, space shuttle missions. And uh, at, when I should also tell you that uh, UT Southwestern in Dallas has been involved in, in 
cardiovascular um, research for with space for um, probably ever since the beginning of uh, sending uh, uh, sending people into orbit. Uh, but uh, in the particular missions that I was involved with, uh, we were looking at um, the amount of atrophy that happens with uh, exposure to microgravity or or space flight, and uh, and so the um, big uh, the big deal was that uh, you know just a two week shuttle mission, uh, you lose twenty percent of your skeletal muscle mass, you lose 20% of your blood volume, you lose 20% of your heart mass. And uh, um, so there's quite an attrition rate, uh, 20% of your bone mass. And um, so um, there's significant uh, losses of the body when it realizes it doesn't need things anymore when it's up in microgravity. The problem comes in when uh, you have to come home, and now you're in a 1G environment, and uh, uh, it's difficult to get around. Um, so there's a whole line of research called uh, countermeasures designed to counter the effects of weightlessness up in, uh, up in orbit or uh, in trips to the moon or Mars or wherever. Brilliant. Well, speaking of that, so that, that's an interesting kind of area, and you, you're the exact person I need to ask about this. When years and years ago, when I was in sports science um, school, university, uh, we learned about uh, osteoporosis and bone density, and, and there in the labs, in the textbooks, they were saying that you know it's not calcium, especially not like things like milk, that are making bones strong. It's impact. It's weight bearing that's then going to create that that strengthening of the bones. Um, obviously, in space, you know, you're describing the same kind of thing. So, back on Earth with our aging population, you know, what is your advice to, or was your advice to your patients as far as maintaining bone density? Was that a diet-based thing, or was it a, a more of an exercise-based thing? For uh, the astronauts, or no, for for regular people on Earth. Um. Yeah. So uh, one of the, well, we. There's really three parts. One is uh, a hormonal structure that is uh, bone friendly. The other is sufficient uh, protein and calcium and a magnesium and a variety of other things to build proper bone. And then the third thing is exercise. The bone needs to be stressed. So um, uh, that's actually interesting with, uh, with Be Strong because um, – we find that even though we don't have the high loads that we would otherwise get, we're still uh, doing things like uh, increasing bone turnover with, uh, with uh, Be Strong BFR training. Um, but uh, so I, my advice to the normal person is they need to eat a proper diet uh, and they, they need probably the calcium nutrients but if they're not doing the exercise and their hormones aren't in balance, then they're not going to be able to use the calcium. So um, regular exercise is, is a very important part of that, as well as um, uh, having, having proper estrogen and testosterone levels. Um, 
in the body. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, as as medics, we get to see you know so many injuries of, of older people, but then you look at some of these more indigenous groups where the same age groups are still out there hunting and gathering and obviously diet is is part of it but it seems like movement is another big part you know we're a very sedentary population that's probably the biggest part um because when when you're moving you're also or exercising on a regular basis uh you're also creating the necessary requirements to have a, a good hormonal milieu and uh and then usually those things make you hungry, so you eat a well-rounded diet. And so I, I think a lot of this bone health stuff starts from uh, the idea of getting regular exercise. Brilliant. Well, you talked about um, BFR, so let's elaborate on that. So it's something that I was exposed to actually quite recently, really, um, outside of tourniquets and blood pressure cuffs, like you said. Um, so... Tell me about how that research was was first kind of discovered, and then you know your journey through that to to the um, the B Strong product that you have now. Yeah. So, um, despite your interest in wanting to be sequential, I'll jump in the middle here for a second, and that is, I I was first introduced to uh, a form of BFR called Katsu, which is the original BFR, and this was in about 2011. Um, but it turns out that Katsu and this form of uh, blood flow restriction training has been around since the late 1960s in Japan. And one thing led to another, and uh, I, I was hearing literally unbelievable things about uh, Katsu and blood flow restriction. And um, my first response was, was very skeptical, uh, but I hung in there enough to start looking into this. And uh, uh, I, long story short, I ended up traveling to Japan, meeting the guy that really came up with this in the first place, uh, Yoshiaki Sato. And he kind of has an interesting story. Um, he was a 18 year old bodybuilder uh, and um, power lifter guy in Tokyo. And he had to, um, uh, he had to attend a funeral, a formal Japanese funeral service for one of his relatives that had passed away. And uh, these, these services are interminably long. And you have to sit in this formal kneeling position the whole time and you can't move. And we would say his legs fell asleep. Um, but when he got, when he tried to get up, he, he basically couldn't. And because of this position, uh, he had essentially restricted blood flow to his legs, uh, from this particular body position. And he felt a, uh, fatigue and a weakness that reminded him of some of the weight training that he had done. And he, yeah, that kind of put that in the back of his mind for a little while and he continued on. And, um, and then um, that was in 1966. In 1973, uh, he was skiing in the Japanese Alps and uh, 
place called Hakone. And um, he ended up uh, uh, falling and, and getting a very bad ankle fracture and a knee injury. And in those days, they would, for an injury like that, uh, they would put you in a, in a full-length uh, leg cast. And um, normally, when you do something like that to somebody, um, they, there's a tremendous amount of atrophy that takes place. And so much so that um, after, after uh, six weeks, they, they want, want you to come back in and change the cast because typically there's been so much atrophy that, uh, um, you know, you're, the fracture is not held in, in, in a fixed state anymore. It's just, you know, this kind of weak little atrophy limb is floating around inside the cast. And what he did is uh, he took some judo belts and applied them above the cast on, on that leg and did isometric exercises in, in just tensing his muscles inside the, inside the cast. And he, he did this because he had had this idea that uh, uh, cutting off blood flow uh, might be a good way for him to uh, strength train while he's in the cast. And uh, he went back at six weeks to get the cast changed. And um, the doctors took off the cast. And lo and behold, he hardly had any atrophy at all. And his knee and his ankle were not tender anymore. And I said, well, can you walk? And he got up off the table and walked. And so instead of getting another cast for another six weeks, um, and, and more atrophy and disability, he uh, basically walked out cured. And this was kind of, well, this was the four, first example of how musculoskeletal injuries uh, heal in half the time that it normally takes them to uh, when using um, elastic BFR. And uh, the uh, idea was that this also healed the, the fractures. So, uh, we were seeing, uh, influence on bone, influence on muscle, influence on tendons. Um, essentially all the different parts that are involved in, in any kind of exercise. And, uh, this is strange. Um, you know, we, as you pointed out, we would feel that, um, you need to do some sort of weight bearing to um, make the bones uh, improve. Uh, but uh, in this case, the bones did improve and he wasn't doing any weight bearing when he was in this cast. So um, there are a bunch of very interesting um, positive uh, effects that were happening that were not really well explained. And then for the next 30 years, literally, he was doing personal experimentation on him and his training buddies and um, looking into different kinds of devices and this sort of thing and uh, ended up coming up with this um, inflatable, elastic, uh, relatively narrow uh, katsu band. And uh, uh, so what... Uh, um, what was going on, uh, he, 
he, he did he didn't really know exactly what all the mechanisms were and all that sort of stuff, but he knew that he was getting results with the, with these kinds of things and, uh, and results in, in very short order and, uh, without having to lift very heavy weights or anything else. And, uh, so he, he strongly felt he was onto something. Uh, they tried all sorts of different things from bicycle inner tubes to, as I said, judo belts to a variety of things. Some for a while they were wrapping multiple wraps around a leg and arguing about how many wraps was just the right amount. And uh, um, one of the problems he solved is is the idea of making something inflatable, where you could control and reproducibly go to the same amount of blood flow restriction. Um, each time you tried this with an individual or between individuals with a inflatable bladder. And, uh, and then the other thing that he realized is this, is this component of elasticity that was necessary to get really safe and effective training. Um, and this, this was taking him up into the, uh, late 1990s and into the early 2000s. And once he had kind of established uh, his way of doing things and his type of katsu bands, um, then he worked with some scientists at the University of Tokyo, and they started producing papers on various aspects of this. And uh, this was, um, I think, 1999 was the first paper that came out in uh, the Western literature. And, um, since then there's been a lot of different papers. Uh, there's actually, um, over 500 at last count of, of publications and peer reviewed, uh, uh, journals. But, uh, the, there's this body of work that, uh, that involves inflatable and elastic BFR, uh, of which B strong is B strong and Katsu are really the two main examples. And then there is, uh, uh, what many other people have used. They, they, ha they saw some of the benefits that, uh, Sato was getting and, uh, uh, partially because Sato doesn't speak very good English and, partially because he didn't really want to communicate what his secrets were. Um, these uh, Europeans decided to just take things off the shelf that they thought did the same thing that uh, um, Katsu bands were doing. So they were using uh, blood pressure cuffs and surgical tourniquets. And these things um, have the disadvantage of being rigid systems where once you get the outer cuff set, uh, there's, there's no further increase in the, uh, 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 volume of the cylinder inside of that, um, inside of that cuff. So, uh, and this produced a whole bunch of other problems that Sato had already been through in the, in the eighties and stuff like that, where, um, this predisposed to blood clots. Uh, there was a very small window where you had enough uh, blood flow restriction to uh, be effective, but not so much that you didn't have a safety risk. And um, 
So uh, Americans and Europeans were relearning the, the lessons that Sato was trying to teach a long time ago. Um, and so the, the field has uh, developed into uh, two groups, one that I would label as rigid, which are basically uh, the outer shell cannot expand uh, when muscle contraction happens and versus uh, elastic where it can expand. And then uh, most of the better systems have an inflatable bladder where you can control the pressure. And uh, that's kind of where the field is. There's, there's also a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> less expensive things like you can go to a Walmart, buy a Cub Scout belt and try to strap that on and see if that'll work for you. But those things, those cheaper systems are neither uh, safe nor effective particularly. Um, but uh, the, uh, the world of blood flow restriction training is really starting to come on. I think it really first started showing up in, in, uh, in the States in about you know, maybe 2010, 2012. And, uh, um, and it was first started in a rehab setting where, um, uh, like Sato with the cast on his legs, uh, people had suffered injury, musculoskeletal injuries, and uh, uh, they really weren't able to do their normal exercise. And so two things would happen. One is uh, they'd get a lot of atrophy, but the other thing is they'd lose a lot of fitness because they couldn't do their normal activity. And the idea of blood flow restriction training allowed them to stay as fit as possible and also uh, avoid a lot of the atrophy and, and uh, loss of function from these things. So um, that's kind of taken off. Um, but the real home run is, is where we can bring this to all the people at an affordable price. Uh, and it's easy enough and not complicated enough so that they can do these things on their own. And uh, that's where uh, that is the basis for why we develop Be Strong. Um, a lot of these other inflatable systems are complicated. They're, they're electronic. You need power. They're expensive. Um, and uh, it's just not feasible for the average person to um, pick this up. So um, we decided to make something affordable, easy to use, comfortable. Um, something that could be used with any activity, anywhere, anytime, by anyone, and um, uh, that is both safe and effective. Because if you're going to have something that most of the population is going to use, you've got to make sure that it's safe and that they really can't hurt themselves. And um, I think we've done that. Well, we were connected by uh, Miguel, who is uh, in, the, in the Marine re uh, Recon kind of world as a as a performance coach himself. So, tell me about the application in the special forces and military that have been using this. Well, um, uh, a lot of different branches of um, uh, the special special forces have been doing this, uh, doing a variety of different kinds of blood flow restriction training. Uh, be strong and Katsu have figured per, per, um, predominantly in, in, in those groups. 
Uh, we were, I've worked with uh, Navy SEALs. I've worked with people at, uh, at Tampa, at uh, SOCOM headquarters, um, also uh, uh, at Fort Bragg. And then we recently did a um, kind of a experience at uh, Camp Pendleton with, uh, with the 1st Recon Reconnaissance Marine Battalion. And uh, Master Sergeant Zoran, who's Miguel, he's, the, he's one of the top enlisted um, uh, non-commissioned officers there. And um, we, did it, we did a experience with about 20, 20 of his guys, including him. And uh, in 20 sessions over four weeks, we had a 12% uh, improvement in strength and uh, uh, an 8% loss in uh, body fat. So um, very dramatic. I, I think the main things that everybody can count on when they're doing uh, Be Strong or BFR training is an improvement in strength and uh, an improvement in body composition. And uh, uh, we, we demonstrated that with their group and they really loved it. And uh, off we go. Brilliant. Well, when, when we were talking, um, you know, uh, Miguel was telling me about it and, and then obviously in the, con the conversations with Holly since, um, one thing that really struck me that's so pertinent to this audience, obviously you've described the military as well, but overall is the recovery element. Now, you guys have been kind enough to send me one and I'm, when it comes here, I'm really excited to see because I've been overcoming some knee, not even re-injury, just some inflammation from some old meniscus injuries. Um, so I'm looking forward to that kind of targeted um, experiment on that specific element. But you guys were describing to me that by using these that actually causes a global response for, for healing and recovery. So tell me about that. Okay. So well, this is kind of the secret. Um, when we exercise um, muscle, whatever muscle that is uh, works and it needs to, uh, it uses up uh, the energy currency of the cell, the intracellular phosphates, ATP, creatinine phosphate. Um, and that has to be uh, restored uh, for exercise to continue. And um, the best way to restore that is by delivering more oxygen and more carbohydrate to the tissues so that they can um, uh, continue to function. And in essence, what blood flow restriction does is it limits, it doesn't eliminate, but it limits the amount of oxygen and other substrate that can be provided to exercising muscle. And what happens is uh, with very otherwise trivial exercise, which really uh, stimulates type one fibers first, uh, it fatigues these fibers and a couple things happen. That fatigue is uh, essentially a bit of a metabolic crisis that's going on in the muscle. And that metabolic crisis stimulates protein upregulation and protein synthesis in the muscle. And it also sends a signal to the brain that it's a little bit in trouble. Uh, and 
the brain says, hmm, I better send out the fire trucks and put out these fires. So uh, there's an autonomic uh, um, nervous system response, but there's also a, uh, a anabolic uh, neurohumoral response. Uh, and that's been best documented by a uh, increase in growth hormone being put out by the, uh, by the pituitary and uh, in response to a BFR workout. And this, this growth hormone goes throughout the body and starts a whole cascade of other anabolic activities. So for example, it goes to the liver and starts a production of IGF-1, insulin growth factor one. Uh, it stimulates increased uh, production of testosterone from the testes. It uh, also uh, causes, um, it amplifies the, this upregulation and protein synthesis in any of the muscles uh, or tissues that were being used in the exercise. And so in this way, um, and, and growth hormone, by the way, is not only anabolic or, or building of muscle, but it's also lipolytic or breaks down fat. And so... Again, the two main things you see from this systemic response that we call it are a increase in um, strength and a decrease in body fat uh, for pretty much everybody that does this. Uh, and whether it's 12 sessions or 20 sessions, it's, it's a relatively short number of sessions to be able to notice a, a positive effect. Um, so uh, this systemic effect is very important. There's a number of implications from that. So let's say that, you know, you're, uh, you've inflamed your menisci uh, with chronic, uh, chronic activity over the years, uh, and maybe your quad on that side is, is atrophy or not firing work. But if you tried to do normal exercise with that quad, it would end up uh, just causing more inflammation in the knee than, than would be positive for you. So you just can't do it. And then when you don't do it, more atrophy sets in and you're in this kind of downward spiral. One of the implications of this systemic effect of BFR is that you don't necessarily need to use the muscles that go around the joints that are injured to uh, get a positive effect. You can, um, do light exercises with those with those muscles, but then, for example, if what we're doing is we're worried about a quad, we can do a really vigorous workout with the upper body and and the bands and get a systemic effect that now goes throughout the body and helps that quad and that knee recover with a with a mere fraction of the amount of pounding that goes on um, on, on, on with them. So. Um, it's a, a very exciting way to uh, be able to um, bring everybody along, whether they're injured or just chronically out of shape or really uh, at, at a very good level of fitness. Uh, this is a great adjunct to their training where otherwise they just might plateau with their, with their performance. And the key is this systemic effect. It's rather than, train the bicep to get the bicep stronger. We're using the bicep to get the whole body stronger.
Yeah, and it makes so much sense um, for many reasons. Obviously, the rest and recovery element, a lot of my my audience, you know, they're very sleep deprived and, you know, um, the body's taken a pounding over 10, 20 years as a responder or, or a member of the military. Um, but the other thing that, that you talk about, and I think we've, we've actually underlined this element yet, is that the weight that you're using with these bands, and correct me if I'm wrong, is about 20% of what you would use without the bands. Yeah, 20, 20 to 30%. Yeah. And, uh, um, that, you know, obviously there's lot, lots less wear and tear on the tissues when you're using those lighter weights. And uh, um, so there's actually very little damage done to, you know, every workout you do ends up causing some damage and some benefit for improved fitness. And it's usually a balance between these two things. But um, Be Strong kind of tips at those scales in favor of reducing the costs of the workout or the damage from the workout and raising the benefit from the workout. And, uh, uh, so it's, it's really a great way to progress where, you know, to kind of put this in perspective, I think most people, um, what they can do is, uh, you know, maybe, maybe two or maybe three, uh, maximal lifting sessions a week is about all they can manage. And with Be Strong, you can end up uh, doing two a days if you wanted to and still recover from these things. That's very interesting. Now, you mentioned hormones and several, several of these topics we've discussed so far. And one area that I'm really trying to kind of pull to the forefront is sleep deprivation. Um, obviously, that's that's a big issue, especially in the first responders and dispatchers and all the other professions that listen to this. As uh, you know, a, a physiologist and a doctor working with you know elite athletes in you know at altitude at, um, in space, what is your experience with the effect on sleep or, or the importance of sleep in a tactical athlete or a sporting athlete? Well, it, it's critical. Um, you know that that's where most of the good recovery takes place. Um, uh, on one hand, you know. Um, People, it, it really doesn't bother performance much if, if the night before a competition you're not getting very good sleep. But it certainly is true that uh, over time and chronically, one needs to get good sleep to be able to perform well and have the body function optimally. Brilliant. And then what about, you mentioned uh, testosterone, you mentioned you know, estrogen and, and, and osteoporosis. What have you seen of the effects of sleep deprivation on those vital hormones that we rely for, you know, growth and recovery and repair? Yeah, I have, I have not really studied that per se. So I, I'm, I'm, I couldn't tell you what I think happens under those conditions. Maybe, maybe you can help, help me out there. <laughs> well, I know one thing that some of the areas that you discuss, especially with, for example, testosterone, a lot of the, responders you know after sleepless nights that our testosterone drops dramatically so the the answer to that obviously is weight training or or using the bands or or something like that we can't always catch up on sleep but we can definitely do some things that initiate the body's natural capacity to produce those hormones versus what i'm seeing in my profession as a uh, kind of plague of exogenous testosterone prescriptions by medical professionals, which I think is the the worst way of looking at it. Yeah. Well, and you know, um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, um, 
all of this live high, train low altitude stuff is, is a way to get the body to naturally increase the amount of circulating red cells, which would, there's other ways of doing that called blood doping. And, uh, and it seems that this be strong business is a way of increasing circulating levels of growth hormone uh, as opposed to taking some injection. So in, in many ways, both of these natural ways of um, enhancing performance are really tapping into how the body ends up uh, uh, helping itself, where there have, all, there have been pharmacological means for doing this, like taking EPO on one hand or taking recombinant growth hormone on the other hand. And uh, the, aside from just the um, ethical benefit, when you're doing these things naturally, like living at altitude or uh, doing uh, BFR, uh, there um, uh, the body's normal feedback mechanisms are not overwhelmed. They're in place so that uh, you're unlikely to hurt yourself where uh, with pharmacological intervention, it's easy to overdo it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for the testosterone specifically, you're then, you know, an addict for life then because you're atrophying the very things that are creating those hormones. Right, right. Right. Well, speaking of, um, you know, adding stress to the body, just one area that I know you're also well versed in that a lot of people have heard about, but I haven't really had many people um, that are, you know, well read or educated on it. But tell me about your philosophy on cryotherapy. Uh, huh. um, yeah. Well, uh, this got started in Poland um, probably in the 1980s or 90s uh, and quietly spread through uh, Eastern Europe. And uh, they would basically uh, go down to very low temperatures and they felt this was helpful for recovery. Um, there wasn't much beyond uh, the idea of uh, this quote unquote felt good. And uh, uh, that's definitely true when you, when you try some of these things. Uh, in today's world, uh, we have um, a lot of uh, crowd chambers that uh, you know, someone goes into for three minutes and um, basically there's a shower of um, nitrogen gas that's at about minus 280 degrees. Um, and uh, uh, the, this ends up, the skin gets very cold and like the muscles send an alarm signal when uh, there's a metabolic crisis there, these uh, skin nerves are selling, sending an alarm signal into the brain uh, saying that, uh, uh, I'm freezing here and <laughs> you ought to do something about it. And so there's a similar mechanism, a similar systemic mechanism where I think the body's recovery resources are mobilized by these brief, but, uh, very cold exposures. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Well, then I got one more area that I want to touch on before we go to some closing questions and obviously talk about where people can find BFR and we'll talk about the discount code that you guys are generous enough to give as well. Um, but coming from 
you know your background cardiovascular with the nutrition with the you know the exercise um, you know, physiology background as well what is your philosophy on what we're seeing at the moment the last four or five months um, you know my perspective is obviously this this virus is is as dangerous as you know some of the other ones that have plagued our nation but I also personally feel like it's holding a mirror up to the health of our nation and we do have a lot of very vulnerable people and what I'm hoping is going to be a discussion on improving the health of Americans, of British, of Australians, of, you know, all the other countries around the world. But without loading that question, you know, what, what do you think we need to learn as a nation from the last four or five months? Uh, that's, that's very interesting, James. It's, uh, you know, we do know that Be Strong BFR um, can combat obesity, um, high blood pressure or hypertension hyperglycemia or diabetes, and that a regular program uh, involving uh, Be Strong will um, mitigate a lot of those symptoms. And it's called the metabolic syndrome. It's it's kind of the uh, Western or American disease. And uh, um, we know that those people are particularly vulnerable to COVID. So um, as a preventive measure, a regular Be Strong BFR program uh, is a good way to uh, minimize some of the severe complications that can be associated with uh, with that uh, particular virus. Um, and also, uh, Be Strong is a great way to come back if you happen to have gotten one of the more severe cases and been in the hospital. And one, once you're once you're out. It's an it's a very doable way of uh, coming back and uh, uh, getting fit again. So on both ends, as a preventive measure to reduce the incidence of severe illness, and as a rehabilitative measure to uh, bring someone back, uh, uh, Be Strong BFR really has a place in this uh, COVID epidemic. Right, and then what about from the nutrition side? What what advice would you give to the average American? looking at what's on their plate to, to assist in that process? Well, my particular uh, bias uh, is, is a uh, uh, very high carbohydrate, uh, low fat diet. And uh, so I think 80% carbohydrates and 10% protein, 10% fat, or maybe 12% protein, 8% fat. Um, and I think the more plant-based that is, the better. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm on the vegan side of the spectrum of everything from a ketogenic diet all the way to a, a vegan diet. Brilliant. So and I think a lot of uh, people misunderstand. So when you say carbohydrate, that's a whole food carbohydrate? Yeah, it's, uh, well, um, yes. Predominantly. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Fruits, vegetables, grains, that sort of thing. Absolutely, not pasta and chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to clarify that. All right. Um, well, then, transitioning to some closing questions, the first one I love to ask is, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Uh, hmm. um, most, most of the things I read are scientific publications of one sort or another. Um, but uh, a series of books that I really enjoyed was uh, 
um, was written by a guy named Carlos Castaneda. Um, a, uh, his first book, I think, was, was titled uh, A Yaki Way to Knowledge. Uh, by, and uh, it's about Carlos is this, he's a uh, sociology student at uh, UCLA, and he goes down into the uh, mountains of northern Mexico and, and starts working with the uh, native populations there and uh, gets, in, gets into all sorts of uh, uh, interesting things. But there's a, there's a spiritualness to it and a, uh, um, a way to uh, a philosophy of life that I think is, is uh, pretty nice. Excellent. I don't think I had that one recommended before, so thank you. Um, what about a movie? Any movies and or documentaries that you love? Well, I have to say I'm a Star Wars fan. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm more of a science fiction kind of guy and, and like them all. Okay. And then what about from either the exercise or the nutrition side? Are there any documentaries that you think are, are worth watching? Um, I recently saw this uh, Game Changer. Um video which is which is about uh, a plant-based diet that i thought was uh, uh very impressive yeah actually i had james wilkes the man behind that on the show probably i think it was the very end of last year i think if i got that right but yeah it was a great conversation brilliant all right then um the next question is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and medical professionals of the world well, maybe I ought to get Z to come on. I've been trying. I've been trying. I think I, I think he's still a little high profile at the moment, but um, you know, I, I will get him eventually whenever the time is right for him. Well, yeah, I'll, I'm happy to twist his arm for you. Please put put a few cuffs on him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then the last question before we discuss where people can find BFR: um, What do you do to decompress? Decompress. Um, I, I I really enjoy getting out in nature. So uh, almost daily, I have an hour to two hour hike in, in the mountains around here. And um, that, uh, that really helps me kind of deal with all the nonsense that you hear and read about on TV and the internet. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, then speaking of BFR then, so... For everyone listening, you guys have been kind enough for the first two weeks after this airs to offer uh, a 20% off, which is using the code behind the shield, all one word. Um, where can people find that product? And obviously, you've got several others on there as well. Well, I, our, our website is the letter B, the word strong, B strong, B-S-T-R-O-N-G uh, dot training. T-R-A-N-I-N-I-N-G. And that's all you need. And that'll take you to the website. And then there's um, uh, a web store on there as well. Brilliant. And if people want to learn about them, is there any uh, social media handles or anywhere else that they can follow you guys? Uh, you know, James, uh, I'm too old for that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Holly and, and some of those people would be better. I... I, I I re you know, I, I'm, I have to say that I have not been on social media ever. Um, I think I, it, I'm going to 
save some of my worry by staying off those sites. I think it's a good idea. It took me a long time to stream, streamline mine. It's nice and positive now, but yeah, you've got to do a lot of pruning. <laughs> so, All right. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's such a, a great perspective, you know, with the, the work that you've done, whether it's the elite athletes, whether it's you know, the astronauts. Um, and I'm very, very excited to try the product. I'll definitely post kind of my journey experimenting with it. But, um, you know, I think it has a lot of relevance when it comes to many of the people listening because we need just global recovery. We need the help, you know, regenerating and, and trying to get back to as close as normal. And this seems like not a hack. This seems like a valuable tool. And if, for me, if the military are trusting these devices, that says a lot for the tactical athletes of the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to do something. One of the things is I tend to think of this as anti-aging medicine and it's good for, you know, regular use of be strong. Uh, you, while you may have particular performance goals, it just ends up making all the tissues uh, healthy and, and functioning well. So. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. 